Eric, uh, you own a tuxedo? Yeah, I have a whole closet full of them. They've just been yeah, gathering I, dust this last year. I imagine. Well, I usually when I see you, usually you're wearing a full tux. Um, and a top hat. Well, you need to, and the cane. And you're going to need to get that ready because this Sunday on Shudder TV, Shudder and Fangoria have partnered up to air this year's Chainsaw Awards live. And we could not be more excited about it. Obviously, we work uh, under the, the banner of Fangoria, and we, we love those folks over there. And we also love the folks over at Shudder. This thing is going to be really cool. It's If you're unfamiliar with the Chainsaw Awards, it's it's the brainchild of Fango, which, as you might expect, means that it's uh, primarily a, a horror awards show. This year, they've got David Dasmalchen hosting. You know him from Ant-Man and the Wasp, the upcoming The Suicide Squad. Uh, he's a huge horror nerd. Love that guy. They have a killer lineup of presenters for this thing, including Jamie Lee Curtis, Keith David, Issa Lopez, Kevin Smith, Tanana Reeve Jason Blum, Doug Jones, a ton of people that you are a fan of. Uh, so tune in this Sunday night on uh, Shutter TV to catch that live. We are very excited to see who wins this year. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rub! Bad rub! Guys, we're gonna go see a dead body. Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We are blessed today with a person who's a bit of horror royalty. Uh, she's um, appeared in some of your all-time favorite movies, including Brian De Palma's Body Double, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, Adam Wingard's Your Next, Ted Gagan's We Are Still Here. I love that movie, and I love Ted. And uh, we'll next be seen in Travis Stevens's Jacob's wife, which is dropping on the 16th of this month. Uh, we are honored to have her here today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mrs. Barbara Crampton. Barbara, how are you doing? Today? Hey, I'm good, you guys. How are you? Living the dream. Yeah. You know? At the end of the pandemic. Living yeah. The yes. We're almost we're out. Almost, we're almost out. Light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows what they're going to send us next. Well, I, I got my first vaccine and I'm going to get my second one next week. But I think in six months, we all we all will need a booster. So we just are have you to doing? Uh, yeah, I heard about that. Are you are you going Pfizer? You did uh, well, Moderna? I did Pfizer. What's... No, I just did. I whatever they had for me, I said, wave it in. Right. And I got the Pfizer and my husband got the Moderna. So we'll see how it all right. plays out. Yeah, you don't get to choose. But no, I'll tell you, I got that Pfizer too. the second shot. Kept me in bed for a few days, so uh, oh, okay. maybe take some time off after that one. Um, be aware. But you have something really exciting going on right now. Yeah. In that you, to you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> beyond that, you recently had your latest movie, Jacob's Wife, premiere at South by Southwest. Yeah. Uh, it is a vampire movie, and we are here today to talk about vampires. I I'm love very it. curious about what it was like having your movie premiere during the tail end of a pandemic. Well, I, I think they did a great job at South by Southwest. Uh, they made it very easy. The platform was really easy to use. I got every movie that I wanted to see and 
they added something in this year. Uh, they sort of partied up with, um, partnered up. Well, or you could say partied up. Partied with up. <laughs> with I like that phrase though. Well, partied up. I, maybe yeah. that's, that's, I found something new there. Um, because we're all at home, right? And right. we want to have that festival experience and we don't get to see one another, go to the bar, or hang out or talk together, be together. But we went on Clubhouse a lot to just hang out and chat about whatever movie was happening that day or that night and, and just to just talk about filmmaking in general and hmm. just to kind of hang out. And it was really quite nice. And Janet Pearson was on with us all the time. And it, it was lovely. And I felt like that was my bar experience going on Clubhouse <laughs> and hanging out with them. I did miss that. I, I did um, buy some random tickets to Sundance screenings. You know, mm-hmm. I had to see the new Wheatley as soon as it was available. Yeah. Um, and my wife and I watched a few other ones. But uh, was it comparable to that, like the online experience? Because yeah. that was very streamlined. And uh-huh. like, I was so impressed by what Sundance did. I don't know what they did at Sundance, but I, I, but you're saying they were, you were able to buy single tickets. You weren't able to do that at South by Southwest. You had to buy a whole, um, you know, pass to be able to see anything. So for real, that knocked knocked a few people out for sure, because they didn't want to spend all that money, but it was, it was just too much material for South by Southwest. They had so, you know, besides the films, they had music stuff and they had conferences and it just seemed overwhelming for them. And that's a little bit of a bigger fest. So they just decided gotcha. they didn't want to sell single tickets. They, they had to draw the line somewhere. They just said for us to create all that software and everything was just going to be unmanageable. Yeah. Did they do a Q and a, uh, after the screening, did you get up there with like Larry and, uh, Travis and, Zoom yeah. to people or that would have been awesome. They they couldn't do any Q and A's either. They thought that that would be too unwieldy. But yeah. what they did do was open a chat window, so when the movie ended, you could chat and ask questions. A uh, few people did, and then we did uh, um, sort of a pre-recorded chat about the movie uh, mm-hmm. on Zoom with Jordan Cruciola. And she oh, asked right questions about the movie. And then after the film, you could also click on that and just watch us talking about the film. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But if you do I it like that, that way, approach. how are you, how are you going to be able to field the questions about what the budget was and what kind of thing? <laughs> <you got on? laughs> what did you shoot this on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Seven people in a row yeah. standing What's- up and saying... This is more of a comment yeah. than a question. And you're like, fuck, yeah. man, just give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. Five minutes. What's the weirdest yeah. question you've been asked during a Q&A? The weirdest or, question. Or the most uh, alarming or the most memorable. Oh, surely well, there's I, like. Yeah. I remember one recently I was somewhere and this person had never seen any of my movies and had never heard of me and was saying that it was really nice to see me and where did I come from and that they hoped that I had more of a career because they really liked me in this movie. And everybody stood up and they said, no, she's been in movies since the eighties. And the guy went, Oh, I've never seen any of them, but you know, I mean, that's valid, I guess, you know, not everybody watches horror movies, but if you're at a horror film festival, you'd think they know a couple of the films I was in. Barbara, tell us uh, uh, a little bit about your, your Stephen King origin story. Like how did you, how did you come to King in the first place? 
Um, I th- well, let's see. I think it was uh, probably when I watched Carrie. I, th- I think I was just at a high school when that. What year was that? Nineteen seventy-eight or seventy-nine? Seventy-four, I think. Oh, 74. So really? Oh, I was when when the movie came out. That was the book. Yeah, you're right. The the uh, the movie came out 76 or 77. You, okay. I, I, the only reason was... I know that is because they were doing their auditions in the same room as uh, George Lucas for Star Wars. Oh, so, wow. you know, they oh, were doing cool. like lots of back and forth uh, auditioning. Like oh. William Cat read for uh-huh. <laughs> read for uh, uh, Luke and and uh, also for. for oh, wow. Uh, for the Roland Carey. Yeah. Yeah, for both the red for C three PO. Uh huh. Yes. Well, that, that's that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I watched the movie, and um, shortly after that, I I read the book. At, at the time, I, I didn't really know who Stephen King was. I I had read a lot of Dean Koontz books um, and was a fan of his, and then uh, saw this movie, and then immediately read the book and said, "Oh." Stephen King, he's a really good writer. <laughs> um, he's a little better than Dean Coots. So, um, uh, and yeah, I was really struck by, you know, just the level of the personal horror that that it depicted. Mm. You know, to me, that that is um, what I identify King with the most. That it's there's so much about the person and there's so much delving into the backstory and who you are and, you know, what's going on in the inner world of the person. And I mean, Carrie was just, just such an amazing movie when it, it, I, I'd never seen anything like it. Right. It was, yeah. So I read that book and then um, I think it was a few years later I had moved to, moved to LA and I got a call for an audition to go in for Firestarter. And I met Dino De Laurentiis and Mark Lester at the, at uh, the Beverly Hills hotel. And I bought a beautiful little yellow dress <laughs> uh, for the meeting. And, you know, I, was, I think I was like 21 or 22 just after I moved there. And so I, I read the book and I, I don't remember feeling like that, book moved me as much probably as Carrie did. But then I had, you know, had that experience. I assume you, you were meeting for the, the mom role, the one that Heather Locklear. Got yes. I, I think yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's what it was. Yeah. Cause it wouldn't have been the Drew Barrymore part yeah. at all. No. <laughs> um, it would have been a radically yeah. different movie if it was. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Dino um, De Laurentiis is a, a guy who's who's come up a, a few times on this show. Um, oh yeah, you mentioned meeting him. What's what what was that? What was that well, guy like? He didn't speak English, or he didn't speak English to me. He mostly just looked at me and nodded. And you know, I didn't <laughs> I didn't speak Italian at the time. I speak a little Italian now because I did some movies in Italy with Stuart. But I don't remember him. You know, I just remember him being really small and just kind of looking at me and I didn't really chat with him. I chatted mostly with Mark Lester and I think the casting director was there and a couple of other people. I was quite nervous. It was one of my very first auditions and, you know, it was a little overwhelming to me, to be honest, to go to the Beverly Hills hotel and meet with them, you know, sort of crazy, but I don't think I read for anything. I think they just met me and we chatted for like a half an hour and then I left. Why? What have other people said about Dino De Laurentiis? Oh, nothing. No, I don't think I don't think we've had anyone on the show that has 
mm. worked with him or met him before, but you know, kind of famously, he was pulling the strings behind um, uh, Maximum Overdrive, mm-hmm. and you know, put King on that as his first feature film with mixed results. Yeah, he had the corner marketed for a while on Stephen King stuff, just for yeah. whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Like anything that was made in the early '80s that was Stephen King was was uh, always through him. And uh, King does that, you know, it's like he'll he'll have his favorites, you know, there'll be a period of time where only Frank Darabont's getting options, for, mm-hmm. you know, for King stuff or or Mick Garris or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he goes through the and now Mike Flanagan. Right. You know, it's like he, he definitely has his favorite people that he he likes yeah. and trusts. I think Mike Flanagan is probably the best adapter to me. Um, no, he's been killing it lately. Yeah. yeah he, he, he's a miracle worker. Yeah. Well, he's such a feeling person person i mean i think the books are so feeling and so deep and i i think he as a filmmaker really does get into the psyche of the characters so much and i think it's a perfect marriage between those two really mike strikes me as a a very empathetic guy and i think that horror and comedy are the same in that you know people that are really good at horror and really good at comedy are tend to be empathetic people. You need to have that to, you know, really make either of those genres work. Yeah, this is my theory as to why, yeah. uh, you know, the right is so bad at, at comedy. <laughs> they don't, they, uh, they might lack the same, uh, the, the same sort of empathy. Feeling, yeah. yeah that, mm-hmm. that the left does. But Mike is a, an absolute sweetheart and um, he is yeah. just killing it on the, on I the know. King adaptation front. Well, you know, in 1995, um, Maybe it was 95, 96. I don't know. Stuart Gordon came to me and said, um, can you read Gerald's game? Because I'm thinking about adapting that. And I said, oh, okay. So I read the book and, and then we talked about it and he said, well, you know, if, if you want to do this and if I go for the rights for this, then um, you have to spend the whole movie strapped to the bed naked, you know, a la Stuart Gordon. And I said, well, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I, yeah. like, why, why naked? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I think, uh, yeah. well, uh, other than, well, you know, the, the, the sleazy producer, you know, sell, selling video, uh, yeah, yeah. video copies angle, I, I guess. But watching uh, Flanagan's version, was, like I wasn't yeah. sitting there going, man, you know, it doesn't make any sense that she's wearing a slip, you know? Right. No, I mean, I, I don't even know if that occurred to him or we, you know, I mean, our discussions were very brief because I just wasn't willing to go there. I mean, in the book, she's naked. Right. right? So, yeah. I mean, he was just going off that, but, um, and he, he did a, um, a version of Peter Pan in Chicago that everybody was naked on stage and, you know, so, uh, I guess he just wanted to be maybe wanted to be true to Stephen King. I don't know. But I mean, and I think that's why people were saying for a long time it was unadaptable. I mean, was that, had, did that have a lot to do with it? I don't, or just, just one person in a room. Yeah. I think I it was guess. more that. Yeah. yeah. And so much of the book is internal. You know, yes. it's, uh-huh. it's her with her thoughts and flashing back to her childhood. And I think having Jesse be, like handcuffed to a bed nude through the whole movie would sort of undermine a yeah. lot of the point being made by that, that it, story. It would be distracting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It would, it would be at odds with the entire thing. I would, I would think, but I want to, I want to roll back mm-hmm. real quick to this thing about 
uh, an all nude production of Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Did they wear like, so it, the first thing that got arrested in- for it too, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm remembering the story correctly. Yeah. Well, the first thing that popped into my mind was a fully nude man with a pirate hat and a hook. Cause you would need a captain uh-huh. hook. Yeah. Like, do, do you know, did the captain, did captain hook still have his hook or were they like completely? Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. He must've, or else he just would have been captain. Yeah. Hugh. <laughs> yeah, I think that was just about him trying to push buttons. You know, I think that was that was Stuart. You know, he was always trying to go beyond and trying to shock people. And, you know, that was that's very representative in, in a lot of his work. Hmm. Never thought about he was a super nice, before. nice dude. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't I didn't get to know him well, but, you know, over my years at Ain't It Cool, like we we talked a few mm-hmm. times and. There was one of my uh, one of the times uh, I went to the uh, American Film Market, and I watched one of the later reanimators there that oh, uh-huh. he didn't he didn't direct that I think he right. just produced, but he was there in the audience watching it, uh-huh. and uh, so I'm just like, oh, this is really bizarre. It's like me and him and like four other like you know <laughs> Japanese distribution people right. that were on their phones the entire time. It's such a weird experience watching stuff at the the film market because it's that audience is is all about cutting deals it's not about mm-hmm. being actually a fan of of movies but it was really you know interesting yeah. that year because i saw that with him and then there was like two or three others where we bumped into each other and he was just you know watching them as mm-hmm. as an appreciator and i'm sure he was also trying to scout you know scout talent and stuff but. right yeah sure. well there's a person who did comedy and horror very well and he right he was also a very feeling person extremely feeling yeah. very deep you know uh, heartfelt man. That's true. He was good with comedy and horror. I would have been fascinated to uh, to see him work with King for that reason, yeah. you know, because I think, you know, like we've the, the people that are successful with King understand the character mm-hmm. of King. You know, it's uh, the Rob Reiners of, of the world, the Frank Darabonts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. Flanagans of the world. Like they they all recognize that that the key to everything is, is are the characters. And and true, that's right. Making everybody feel the for those characters in a similar way that you feel when you're reading, uh, reading the book. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting that um, most of Stewart's most popular movies came from the Lovecraft universe, which mm. I don't feel like those characters are as well drawn out um, as Stephen King's are. Um, you you know, it's a, right. It's a Lovecraft is a, is a world where you actually feel as a character, like a minuscule part of it. And, and the world is overpowering. Yeah. Yeah, The world is overpowering and unknowable. And, you know, you, you just don't even matter as much as all the stuff you don't know. So the fear is outside of yourself and greater than yourself. And, and King was really about the fear it, it was personal horror, like really what's inside your psyche and your heart and your soul. Um, so I would think that I think Stuart did try to work on a few things with Dennis Paoli. I, I, I know that they talked to Stephen King a few times about different adaptations, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what they were going to do. I think they were going to maybe do something for masters of horror. Um, yeah, but I'm not sure what that was, but he, he never, he never did anything with them. 
Now, today you have brought us uh, Salem's Lot. Why Salem's Lot? Oh, my God. So many reasons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to compare the book to the um, TV movie. I don't know. It's probably one of my favorite King movies, I think. And probably because of my childhood in a way. I, I don't know. Everything comes full circle sometimes. You don't know why. But I grew up in Vermont and I spent summers in Maine. Um, in a little town called Agunquit, and mm-hmm. it was a summer community. It was on the on the water, on the beach, so it really didn't get a lot of action and traction. Just you know, for those eleven weeks that it was really hot in the summer, and um, I did spend some time up there before the summers and after because my my brother in law owned a restaurant up there, and just being in Vermont and being in Maine. Um, when I saw that movie for the first time, I've watched it many, many, many times. I understood those people. I understand that small town. I grew up in a town where the doctor came to your house yeah. to visit you. Um, you didn't, you know, if you didn't want, you could go to his office, but if you wanted him to make a house call, he would. And he had a bow tie and you know, I just understand that mentality, that small town sort of, you know, Peyton Place type of mentality where there's a lot of secrets in the town. And we had our own family secrets and mm-hmm. we lived kind of a little bit of an insular life in the town of Rutland, Vermont. And I, I just really related to the movie when I saw it. And and I guess I didn't realize it. And I read the book afterwards, but I didn't realize how much I was going to love vampires until I watched that, until I watched that movie. Although I did grow up watching dark shadows and that was probably my gateway drug into the horror genre was, was that series. But I had never seen anything like Salem's lot on TV. Like it scared me so much when I saw it. I can still remember how I felt when those kids, you know, uh, <laughs> when Danny Glick was at the window, right. was it Danny Glick, no, it was the other, it was Ralphie Glick at the window. Like I would, I could, I was like, Holy shit. There's, there's a kid like floating at the window. <laughs> I mean, you know, I watch it now and it's gleeful and you guys are laughing. Um, and it's true, but I remember feeling so terrified watching that for the first oh, time. Yeah. No, well, I'll, I'll say this. I mean, listen, the, one, you're not alone. Everybody, not just, you know, the people who saw it when it played on TV live, anybody who watched that, you know, uh, below, say, the age of 16 or mm-hmm. something for the first time, uh, like that scarred them. You know, there is something very otherworldly about the way that Toby Hooper shot it, because I think yeah. he shot almost all of that uh, in reverse. Like there's almost all right. reverse. So the, the, the smoke is like, not moving the way it's supposed to. And there's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I think Sam Raimi did, did played with that a little bit with some of the deadite movement, you know, in, in the evil dead uh-huh. movies, but like, it just makes it not feel there's something off instantly mm-hmm. about the movement. Um, and it was and, on a crane. They shot it on yes. a crane instead of by wires. And I don't know. If yeah. So the movement any... was way more steady and yeah, yeah it, it's so funny. I, I re- rewatched um, the uh, TV movie, having like read some of that uh trivia and so i was like looking for it and there is like mm. one, one shot where you can very clearly see the the crane like covered in <laughs> in black uh, oh, really? velvet or something like oh. pulling pulling away but you have to really be looking for it and it, i think it only really shows up on the 
the very nice uh, restoration that Warner Archive did for for their Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what's funny about that movie too is like every window is the same in that whole damn town in the hospital. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in the yeah, houses, right? they're all the same window. Uh, maybe they want to make it easy for the vampire to come in, but uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, was the smoke, do you know if the smoke or the fog was put in after that? That must've been practical. That was like, no, that was there. Yeah. That was, it was as there, they were yeah. shooting. Uh-huh. Yeah. I saw yeah. a thing the other day when I was, I was sort of reading up on the movie and that the, they couldn't find the specific look for the, uh, Marston house that they wanted. And so they right. built a hundred thousand dollar, you know, which was not a small amount of money at that time, you know, the facade. facade. Yeah, yeah. To, to like fit down over this house. And uh, that's crazy. And yeah. why did it cost so much money? They could have built a house for that. I know. There right? in the town. Yeah. It's really weird. It reminded me of the house that they built for uh, the, the house on Nebolt Street for it. Chapter one. Like that was just a, a vacant lot. And I knew a guy who lived sort of in that area and his girlfriend went down when they were shooting it. Chapter one and took, took photos of it. Of course you would never know to know it to, to look at the movie, but you know, that thing was about maybe five or six feet deep. The front of it was built out and stood on this kind of gross lot in the middle of nowhere. But the interior was a soundstage, wasn't it? I mean, just the, of the house, the, that, those beautiful shots of, the big staircase and the hallway yeah. and the big, the grand hall. Yeah. So they must, they must've shot that in Los Angeles. I, I don't know. Probably. Well, I mean, most of the movie I think was shot in California too. And that's something else watching it now is uh, you can definitely see that 70. Like I, I, uh, I, I love, uh, and this is a weird aside and I had no other co- podcast that's talking about Salem's lot. will bring up uh, Pete's dragon, but it, it has that kind of th- same thing that I remember from, from that time where, like it, Pete's Dragon is supposed to be a New England town, you know, fishing community, and and it was shot in California. And once you've been been to Southern California, you recognize that terrain and <laughs> yeah, like instantly. And uh, it's like no, there there aren't those kind of you know brown shrubby <laughs> hills mm-hmm. in the the Northeast. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, I noticed that on Salem's Lot as well. I guess I guess because I want to believe, I believe, you know, I believe it's yeah. New England. Um, you know, if if you're told that strongly enough, sometimes you won't notice those things as you're watching it. Because it never, that never really affected me that I thought, oh yeah, I mean, I knew where it was shot like an hour north of Los Angeles, but it, it I never thought about it like, oh, I'm looking at this now. And, <laughs> right. you know, this isn't New England. Now, did you read uh, the book? Did you read that like shortly after seeing the TV movie or did was that something yeah. you came to later? I read it shortly after the movie and then I just read it again in preparation for the podcast. I mean, it's just a beautiful book and I love the themes and I love the theme of, you know, Ben being haunted by his past and needing to come back to the town to face it, to move on and blaming himself for the horror that's there. That was one of the the biggest things that I took away from it this time was that he needs to come back to face it, but he also feels like maybe he brought it there with his Mm -hmm. coming to the town. And I don't know. And I know that King puts himself in a lot of his writing, but does he feel that way? Because he's writing about the horrors of humanity and mankind. Does he feel like he's bringing it to the forefront? And does he feel responsible in some way? Uh, Some, I don't know, some negative way, or is he examining that himself? 
by exploring the horrors of the human soul. I don't think he's feeling bad about that. I think he seems to delight <laughs> in, mm. you know, spooking people out. King is sort of like a like a, a sideshow barker for, mm-hmm. you know, things that go bump in the night. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's he just delights in that sort of thing. If you go and mm-hmm. watch like early interviews with him, he's he's even more like that. He's, you know, mm. I'm sure the cocaine didn't tone any of it down, but he's like a little mm-hmm. kid jumping up and down in his seat, you know, to just like freak people out or you yeah. know, gross people out. And um, that's that's sort of how I've always thought of him, even as mm-hmm. he's sort of like mellowed into older age and he's a little more stoic than he used to be. When he's been introspective about it, like maybe kind of look at him inserting himself into the Dark Tower series where mm-hmm. and that could be like the most direct way for an author to represent himself in a, you know, in a book is actually write him as a character. He's mm-hmm. writing Stephen King, the character and the way King is a character in Dark Tower acts might be more true to how he feels, you know, deep inside uh, mm-hmm. And that, like, he just feels like he's a, a conduit for these mm-hmm. stories that are coming from somewhere else. Yeah. So that his his role, mm-hmm. his link in the chain, is to use his talent to yeah. to take something from you know that's already pre existing from one area and, and translating it mm-hmm. uh, for everybody else. So if I if I had to guess, I would say that's probably more the way that that he would feel if you asked him like philosophically versus you know like the technical side of it, which Scott said that's exactly right mm-hmm. he's he delights in grossing people out you know th- there is a side of him that's a little william castle and he he really yeah. wants to totally you know have have the tingler you know vibration in the seat and, and goosia while you're reading and and you know that's that's kind of what he's into it for mm-hmm. have you guys ever met him yes yes yeah yeah, yeah very separately very, yeah. Yes, uh, yeah yeah we weren't yeah. we were holding hands and Yes, <laughs> hanging out outside his house. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, don't people do that? They go up and like hang around. His, I, I, yeah. I, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. I, have yeah. You? Took oh. my picture in front of the gates. Oh, yeah. really? But yeah. was that before you met him or after? That was way after I met him. I, I interviewed him for uh, "Ain't It Cool." Uh, for the Dark Tower comic book, and he made an appearance at the New York Comic Con, and mm. I was one of like four people that that got to interview him, and oh. I, you know, was super nervous, and you know, you sit down. Yeah. And, talk to him and he's like you know i i I remember kind of focusing on his hands weirdly enough like he would be talking and using his hands and just thinking like how long his fingers were you know it's like he's got in like it's such a weird thought because i was engaged in the conversation but there was you know sometimes you know when you have these kind of out of body meeting your hero experiences you hyper focus on a a random detail and Uh for whatever reason that's that's the thing that like stuck out to me is like, oh, yeah, that dude's super nice. And he's got, you know, very long fingers. Yeah, it probably bonded you to the moment so you wouldn't freak out. So you could actually right. focus on something. And he does talk with his hands a lot. When I met him, it was for a, a thing that Sony put together for the Dark Tower. And they uh, one part of that was that they put us all in a room with him for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes and let us talk to him. So it's him sitting at a table in front of us. And we were in the front row of a, a movie theater facing him. And if you look at the pictures I took during that conversation, like most of them, he's got his hands in the air. He's flapping them around or something. He is, he is animated like that. So I know what, I know what you're talking about. This probably from sitting at the typewriter and the computer for so many years. Now he just has to move around when he's, he has to be animated when he's probably a little nervous energy too. He doesn't, he doesn't strike me as a guy who terribly enjoys being interviewed. 
So, well, he enjoyed teaching, right? When he was a teacher and he was in front of kids for a long time. Yeah, that's time. true. That's true. Um, hmm. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, you're a big vampire person. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on vampires. Like why, why do you love vampires? Mm. Which are some of your favorites? That sort of thing. I, you know, I have so many favorites. I, I think, um, I think vampire lore is a great metaphor for so many things that are deep inside of us. Vampires are sexy and they're, it's forbidden and they're scary. Um, and, and so many people have used them in so many different ways to tell so many different stories, right? My favorites are like, um, I love Daughters of Darkness um, mostly because I love Delphine Seyrig and her performance in that film and mm-hmm. how steady she was and, you know, beautifully gothic and just consuming and controlling and just cool. And I love Nosferatu, Herzog's Nosferatu. And, but, you know, so many of these are, are different. Like I love Near Dark as well. And that's right. fun. And cool. And I love Let the Right One In. There's it's a masterpiece. Just, yeah. Right? So, you know, there's so many different stories that you can tell and, and how people relate to, you know, somebody taking something from them. Usually, you know, it's the woman that's being bitten and the male lover or counterpart is like fighting against the vampire. And that, you know, we see that in, in most of, of um, the Dracula stories and I think in in later years, it's it's just become a metaphor for so many different things. And and as far as um, Salem's Lot, it's just you know it's this town. It's like being invaded by by a, an, another sort of entity, and how that affects the town and who the town's people are, and you know what's going on with them, and how did, how does that take place in a town like that. And I think when Stephen King was coming up with the idea, everybody knows this because it's been written about extensively that he talked to his wife about it. And, you know, he was initially maybe going to set it in New York City. And then she said, oh, no, he'd get hit by a cab. So you should set it in a (laughs) small town. Right. So he set it in a small town. And it just, you know, it's just so breathtaking and in the expansiveness of, of all the different people in the town and what they're all individually going through and how it affects them all. You know, I found that to be really compelling. It's an interesting book for him uh, in this period of time as well, because, you know, he had his, he didn't set out to be a horror writer. You know, he set out to Mm. just be an author. Like most of the stuff that Mm -hmm. he had actually written before Carrie were like, you know, pulpy, you know melodrama you know all those stuff that he would later uh release in as the bachman books you know they're yeah they're not horror centric uh, at all they're they're might they might be you know dystopian science fiction and you know there's mm-hmm. all this uh, other genre but not specifically horror and i i read a story where he was saying he was having dinner it was his agent or his editor i don't remember which uh, in new york and he said, what have you got next? And he's like, well, I have these two, these two, you know, novels that are finished. Uh, one's called second coming, uh, which would later become Salem's lot. It's a vampire novel. Uh, and he thinks it's the better one. Mm. Um, and then the other one was blaze, which he would, uh, later release. I mean, much later, like in, in the aughts. And it's not one of his best books, but it, 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 it that seems to me like interesting just as a King fan, 
you know, that's the crossroads. Like what would have happened if they had at that dinner chosen to go with blaze instead of Salem's mm. lot, mm-hmm. would he have hit or, you know, uh, and if he did, would he have not been famous for being the horror writer? You know, if he had gone off and done, you know, other stuff like, you know, but to me, it feels like he went in the right path um, because Salem's lot is in a lot of ways, the template for what he would become most famous for doing, you know, the small town Maine. Yeah. The fact that, you know, you have this main character in Ben Mears, who's a, a, a an author, you know, which pop up in a lot of his works. There's that. But like you have a main character, but you also spend so much time on all the side characters that really flesh out mm-hmm. this small town. And and here's the thing is one thing I really love about the book is how bleak it gets. This isn't like they uncover the vampire plot and save the yeah. day. It's like, right. you know, the, the main kid, you know, watches his fucking parents die. You know, it's like yeah. it, the entire town is taken over and only two people get out. You know, it's like, right. I guess just because we're used to it existing as it is, it doesn't seem as radical, you know, mm-hmm. right now. But like, I can't mm-hmm. imagine somebody, you know, coming out with a, a popular best-selling story like like that Back now then, that without would a happy be, that ending would, that would end like that yeah 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 that's a really good point um i hadn't thought about that the things that i love most about the book are just the descriptions it was one section of the book rereading it that i really focused on and it was um what's, what's the guy's name who's the grave digger jeffrey lewis's character Right. Uh, what, what the heck's his name? Everybody's saying it now as they're listening to us. Uh, Mike yes. Ryerson. Mike Ryerson. And he was digging the grave and he was hearing things in the wind. Mm. And he was looking at the grave and he was feeling like he was being watched. And he was looking right. up at the Marston house and he was, you know, he, and it was daytime, right? When he was digging the grave. And, and it was probably the scariest, most chilling <laughs> section of the book for me right. as an actor. When I prepare for a character, I usually write a big, big, big backstory, like pages and pages, because I have to fill stuff in for myself. And, you know, working with Stuart Gordon, I didn't, I didn't get a lot of backstory, like in the material, I would, you know, most of that stuff was made up. But when you read something like that, I can imagine the actor, Jeff, I mean, Jeffrey Lewis was amazing, but just being able to read the book and 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 getting the sense of what that scene was like and how King depicted it and you know the oppressiveness and the dread and the spookiness and all of it just informs an actor so much and you know I, I feel like some of the performances in the film were really outstanding. And I don't know how much of it was the actor or was it the book, you know, just, just having so much of the backstory written for you already. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to me, I think Jeffrey Lewis is like my favorite character in one of my favorite characters. I mean, I love Ben Mears, but, yeah. but just as far as embodying that type of old Mena, you know, in, yep. And and living and working your whole life there, and I mean his accent was perfect, and just his embodiment of that character, I just believed him so much in that scene at the restaurant. You know, I just, I mean, it was freaky and scary, and I just, I thought he, you know, he he was one of my favorites in the movie. 
Yeah, there, there's an extra added layer of, of uh, weirdness for me because Jeffrey Lewis looks 90% like my grandpa. Oh, so, really? <laughs> so, you know, because he has that great sequence after he uh, he turns and he confronts mm. the, uh, the teacher again. And he he's just sitting there rocking. Oh, in the, in the rock- rocking chair. That was and, the and- other scene that freaked me out. And I that's one of the scariest moments I've ever seen in film history was just, and maybe it was because of my age, but right. He was so believable and yeah. so scary and so freaky. And you knew he was going to look up from that chair eventually. And you knew he was going to have and the eyes it. and, and they then, hold it for so long. Yeah. With <sighs> him just making the one, the squeak and teacher, it, it, look at me, look at me, teacher. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Right? You saying that about the, his description of, um, Mike, uh, Mike. Uh, digging the grave. And, you know, the the dread of that moment or feeling like he's being watched and that just jogged loose a memory I hadn't thought of in many years, which is that when I was a kid and, you know, my mother read uh, King's books and her big thing with The Shining, she didn't like the movie because what? she didn't really, yeah, she, yeah, she didn't like the movie and uh, didn't feel like it was faithful enough to the, the source material. Oh, I remember that, right. but I remember her big scare out of The Shining was his description of the shower curtain rings being pulled across the uh, bar by the the woman in in 237. I'd completely forgotten about that. But he is hyper talented when it comes to describing those little little moments that are only really transpiring in your head. The the fear of that. Yeah, the the consuming nature of what that does to you. And and yeah. Did she ever um, come to like the movie later on, or I mean, do you like the movie, or did oh yeah, I loved by her, or yeah, yeah. I I remember that they were pretty permissible about what they let me watch. I was an only child, so got away with a lot of a lot of stuff actually, but Mm. um, they weren't too uh, restrictive in what I watched. I remember The Shining being sort of a battle because I was really I must have been really young, and we were at a blockbuster. And I had already seen R-rated stuff by that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I I remember standing there in the aisle, like trying to convince her to rent it for me. And she finally relented. And then coming home to watch it, and I watched it in broad daylight. I thought it was scary, uh, but yeah. it didn't it didn't like knock me on my ass or anything with how frightening it was. I think I was probably too young to even really absorb the whole dynamic of Jack and Wendy in that and the idea of alcoholism and abusive father right. and all of, all of that stuff like kind of bounced off me. So it was mostly just the imagery of the movie. And the imagery of the movie was freaky, but I remember she walked in around the time of the Room 237 uh, sequence and uh, coming in and seeing the nude woman on screen. And mm-hmm. she was just like, oh, I forgot about this part. <laughs> Yeah, she's like I wouldn't. Have, I maybe wouldn't have oh. read it. She was more concerned about me seeing a naked lady than, um, you know, yeah. Scatman yeah. Crothers taking an axe to the chest or something like that. Which is right. Well, that's our repressive puritanical society that we grew right? up in here in America. Yeah, to me, that's that's the scariest scene in in the film. Um, the bathroom. The, yeah, the bathroom, the bathtub, and her coming out of the bathtub. You know, forget she's naked. Who cares? I mean, it's just so scary. I, right. I, right? I Jesus. think it probably registered for me at that age because it's a naked lady. 
Yeah, you know? probably. And I hadn't seen a lot of those at that point. <laughs> um, yeah. Now it doesn't register for me at all. You're just, you're caught up in the, the tension of the moment. Did your kids, did you hmm. show them horror movies when they were young? Were, were they allowed uh, to watch? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty careful about what I showed them. My husband and my daughter are both not fans of horror movies, unfortunately. I mean, my husband will, will watch anything I'm in and tell me, that's great, honey. But um, he's he doesn't seek out horror movies. He gets scared, and my daughter does too. But when they were younger, they watched Monster Squad and, you know. Um, Just which Things. rules? Yeah, which rules? Totally. And my son has become a horror fan and he does listen to podcasts and he he is, you know, my buddy now with horror movies and so we watch them together a lot and and he read The Shining recently and watched the movie, well, I think it was maybe 2 years ago, not recently. Uh, time in the pandemic is just, I don't know, it's yes. really strange. I don't know what happened yesterday or tomorrow. That was last like, week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but he You've watched, always been here, Barbara. I know. Oh, it was funny. I think he had some kids over a couple years ago, and then I told him he should watch The Shining. And so they were all downstairs in the family room watching The Shining, and the kids got bored. Oh, I couldn't believe it. And so they watched something else. I can't remember what it was that they watched. Some stupid, really dumb movie that I went, really? <laughs> oh my God. You turned off The Shining for that. He said, but mom, I like The Shining, so I'm, I want to watch it. So I watched it with him the next day or a few days later. And then he watched it again. And then he watched it again. And then he, he got the book and he read the book. And I was like, oh, thank God I have one in my family. And how old was he then? I guess... 16 he's 18 and that was now. the first time he'd seen it that was the first time he'd seen it yeah mm-hmm. I, I recently I, I i don't have kids but i have um i have nephews and i've showed them some fairly inappropriate uh things uh m- with, their, with their parents uh permission yeah. but uh, okay the the youngest one is really scared of of horror stuff he loves it but he's scared of it and so i've been kind of uh forbidden to show him too much mm-hmm. uh uh, and it's weird though the stuff that stuck with him, uh, but like because uh, I, I showed them the Sixth Sense, and I mm-hmm. think he was he, uh, Max is the youngest one. He must have been seven or eight at the time, and Rocco was ten or eleven. Uh, his older brother, um, and movies don't phase the older the older one at all. But apparently, he uh, I got a call from uh, his dad <laughs> like the next day, going, "Yeah, so you need to be a little bit more careful what you show showing Max because he's uh, he just he had a nightmare last night where about." Uh-huh the boy with the bloody head and it was the, <laughs> the moment in in uh, sixth sense whenever Haley joel osment sees yeah. the kid in the apartment and says i know where my dad keeps his gun or whatever and he turns around and the back back of his head's gone for you know that's yeah. stuck with him that's, but that's the scary. whole reason I'm, bring, I'm bringing it up is because i showed them uh the shining i i wanted them to see it because i really knew that they would love ready player one Mm-hmm. I saw Ready Player One. I'm like, this is so up their alley. They just started playing like Overwatch, and you know, there's like, you know, there's Overwatch characters in the background. I'm like, you know, I've shown them Roger Rabbit, all this other stuff over the years, kind of steadily, you know, getting them, you know, on board to where they'd recognize the DeLorean, they'd recognize King Kong, they'd see all the the references and get it. And I'm like, they would love this this movie, but I'll be damned if I'm going to take them to see it and, and have this be the first time they see anything from The Shining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, yeah. Uh, so I I um I told them that we were going to watch 
The Shining first, and then uh, we were going to go see Ready Player One. They said, why, you know, why do we have to watch this first? I'm like, oh, you'll see, you know, or no reason. I I, I was trying to keep it a secret. But we watched The Shining and, you know, and I was telling them like, all right, we're going to watch this. I'm going to pause it, you know, if anytime you have any questions or, you know, if if it's feeling like too much, just let me know. Um, and, uh, uh, they were just young enough to when the naked lady comes mm-hmm. on the screen, I didn't have to, it's embarrassing to them right now. Yeah. Right now that this isn't, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe the older one was speaking through his fingers. I don't know, but they were, you know, they were covering their eyes going, Oh, naked lady, uh, whatever. Uh, but they like legit love the movie and, oh, um, that's good. And, uh, they were like super into it and, and, uh, it was such a, a great, uh, experience just that one two punch because then we went and saw Ready Player One and then when you know the shining music starts up right I, I remember vividly and this is a memory that's going to be burned into my my like happy memory you know like uh, um, in Inside Out or whatever you you have the 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 Pixar movie you have the, the super <laughs> happy memories you store forever like this mm-hmm. is this will be one of those uh, but when the shining music started up and like the overlook they you know falls into place and like I, I'll always remember Rocco, the older one, looking up at me with the most exciting, you know, <laughs> excited look on his face, and he yeah. was just so happy to, you know, that he was inside. He got it. He's just like, oh, I know what this is. And then, like, as they were going through the hotel, and like the the door opens to room two thirty seven, and he's like, looked up at me, like, no, don't go in there. Like he knew <laughs> what, what was going on, you know. And and uh, you know, I don't know. It's like. Yeah, you gave them a nice gift by doing that. Yeah, I wish that I had seen the Salem's Lot miniseries uh, when I was a kid because I think it would have scared the shit out of me. And I didn't see it until many years later. I I feel like I only saw that one for the first time. I must have been in I must have been in my twenties by then, and I didn't really find it frightening. You know, it's it's dated looking for one thing. It is a little bit, yeah. Um and. You know, I recognize the the iconic, you know, scares in that movie for what they are, you know, and they're, you know, well-deserved. But I think I would have appreciated it more when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Like the It miniseries, when that came out, I was at just the right age to have that, like, completely rewire my fucking brain for a couple of weeks. Because it was just so terrifying, you know. Um, I'm pretty sure Salem's Lot would have done that Yeah, when I was that I- young. But The Shining didn't. Wow. One of my other most terrifying scenes in Salem's Lot was um, was when the vampire is in the kitchen in broad right. daylight mm-hmm. and, you know, grabs the kid around the neck, grabs, grabs Mark around the neck and, you know, and the parents are there and, and, and uh, uh, Straker is there and it was like a vampire in broad daylight, like just right there. The right. monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I'm kind of still terrified by it. Like I, I think I'm a good horror fan. You guys have probably watched more horror movies than I have, but I still get scared. And I, I think I still remember how scared I was at, at, by that movie when I was, you know, I don't know how old I was, you know, in high school. It, the, those feelings still stay with me. Like I hark back to them when, when I watch the movie again, like they still scare me because they scared me back then. So my body remembers that and it goes through that same thing. You know, I still feel that way when I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've seen that movie. I don't know. 
20 times. Right. And um, I knew Gunnar Hansen when he was alive. And I, but I, you know, the first time I watched that, I didn't sleep for three nights. And, <laughs> and I, I watch that now, even now, it still scares me. I, I think I'm still a good audience for being scared. I, I do get scared. I mean, there's a good vibe. I mean, a good creepy vibe from Chainsaw that gets under your skin. Um, and some of that does translate into Salem's Lot, but I, I will agree with you. Like, I think that that sequence in the kitchen is <sighs> probably my favorite top to bottom scene. Like, I, I you can't really beat, you know, either Danny Glick or Ralphie Glick, you know, at the window scratching, like just how that's executed as individual moments. Those are uh, incredible. But that mm-hmm. kitchen scene, both in the book and in the, the, yeah. the movie is so brilliantly executed because everything about it is telling you you're safe. It is a bright, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. kitchen. It's a kid with his two parents, his two protectors and the priest in a vampire story, right? So in the priest in a vampire story is the knight in armor, right? That, mm-hmm. that is the Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, you are protected when you what are What could hurt you when the priest is there? What's going to, what could possibly hurt you and your parents? And, it ha- and it's yeah. just, happened so out of left field like the big bad guy that you've only really heard about you know up until this point and in the movie you know in the in the book it's he's more of a traditional dracula type where he shows up and he's like a suave sophisticated yeah that's true you know, guy yeah and the, but in, in the movie what's so effective is like he's a legit monster he's he's nosferatu he is not yeah, and he doesn't speak he doesn't speak and yeah in the book he was more of the traditional suave educated um sophisticated vampire and why did they decide to make him more like a Nosferatu does anybody know that I I read a little bit about that this was being made at the time when there were multiple Dracula projects oh yeah that's true the Franklin Jello one being Mm -hmm. the big uh, deal one and and he was amazing sexy sexy he was the sexiest vampire to me (laughs) he's one of my favorites but I think that was the the reason that I'd read is that um, is that Toby Hooper when he was looking to adapt it you know or come on the adaptation that uh, he just thought it would be better to make him more Nosferatu than Mm -hmm. And a traditional Dracula because there were so many, there were literally like legit, like two or three like high profile Dracula movies that were playing in that suave mm-hmm. menacing vampire. And he wanted to make a monster instead. Mm-hmm. I think that the further you get a, a, a for an on-screen vampire, the further it gets away from the classic Dracula look is, uh, I think the more I like it. And mm-hmm. I think that the less sexy you make the whole thing, the less romanticized it is. I think I also like it more. I, hmm. and so what are your favorite vampire movies then? You must well, I think the, interesting I was, I was thinking about this when you were listing yours off earlier and I think let the right one in is maybe my favorite. Yeah. Um, that one is just such an upending of the traditionality of, of vampire stories. And it's an ugly, like mean spirited. I mean, it's not ugly to look at. It's a beautiful movie, but uh, it's telling kind of an ugly story about this this girl and then you know the the guy is sort of um her, her he's helper. a child molester you know um her neighbor yeah her neighbor is sort of the force for good the young boy yeah. but even he gets eventually sucked into her mm-hmm. her lifestyle i think it's um i didn't really read it that way i read it is that the young boy next door was going to grow up to be that protector. Like, yeah. in, you know, and uh, I mean, I think in, in, they don't make a point of it in, in the movie, but apparently in the book, like it's, it's made quite clear that uh, Ellie 
or Eli or Eli mm-hmm. um, was uh, uh, was a boy that she was a boy when she was turned and she's like kind of transitioned, you know, herself into mm-hmm. uh, into a girl, uh, which adds a whole other really, you know, random. Actually, I didn't you know, know that part of it. Really? She yeah, I didn't know that either. It adds this whole other complication, but like I, yeah, for you, real. I, of course, anytime you see, you know, a movie where you have that, cause it obviously her protector was in love with her. I mean, that is uh, unquestioning, you know, that, that that's what that relationship was, but it becomes something, completely more complicated and, and bizarre and interesting. I didn't read. The, it, yeah. But I didn't read the book, but did was, was her older helper. Did he meet her when he was also younger and he grew up? I believe so. Yeah. I believe, I believe that that stated, but again, I haven't read the book either. This is just from, you know, the bits and pieces I've gleaned. Um, but I mean, I just, from a storytelling perspective, I can, I, I can see that 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 is where they are going with with her new protector. Her her new protector is a a young boy that, and she mm-hmm. will always stay that age, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, it's a cycle. Yeah, it's a cycle. Yeah, and and you know there is like kind of a subtext of you know how jealous the protector gets over her yeah. her uh, growing you know friendship and relationship with this boy and, and and all this you know where you can kind of see that he's seeing that his time is running out and he's getting almost too old to help her and. And and all this, and him, he's fighting against it. it. It it's a fascinating movie. I love I love that movie to death. And yeah. the remake's pretty good too. I never saw the remake. Yeah, I should watch yeah, that. Man. It's good. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's very yeah. similar. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Is is but, it like word for word dialogue or not? No, but really. it's not. Yeah, not not literally, but it's it's very close. It makes a few changes, I think. But I haven't seen that one in forever. I should go back and watch that one. It sounds like you you like the the more monster vampires, the more from Dust Till Dawn or the Bram Stoker's Dracula, the the Coppola Dracula. Um, No, uh, Scott. uh, Yeah, Scott. Oh, you like you like something that's a little different. You said, yeah, yeah. I I like that. I like when the vampires a little more animalistic, a little less romanticized. Mm. You know, I find that Mm. just to be a more interesting approach. And I think Let the Right One In has the most unique approach. So that one, if I had to name it, I'm not really a big mm. vampire dude, though. So You're not? No. Um, oh. And I think it's sort of the same problem that I have with zombies or or even werewolves to a lesser extent. I don't find any of that stuff scary to begin with. I was thinking about this when we were talking a moment ago about being scared of movies. Like slasher movies don't scare me. What Vampire stuff then? doesn't scare me. I think it's got to be. I think the more inex- <laughs> I think the more inexplicable the horror of it is. Like, did Mandy scare you? Did did we yeah, scare Mandy? Yeah. I think Mandy's a like something movie. that's a little a little more out there. Like, yeah, you can't I, put your I'm drawn on to and... cosmic horror. A yeah, lot. so the maybe you like Lovecraft. Oh, I love yeah. Lovecraft. Terrible racist, but uh, I love that genre yeah. of of horror where it's more inexplicable than it is defined. I think the more you define the thing, the less scary it becomes. This is something I've realized about oh. myself over time. Like when the new Halloween came out, that's about as good as you could ever hope for a, a slasher movie to be. That's a great piece of filmmaking, yeah. but it kind of left me cold. Like I didn't, I didn't come out of it like foaming at the mouth in excitement like a lot of my my colleagues uh-huh. did, and I realized. I just don't like slasher movies very much. And mm. and I think that's at least a little bit a part of it. You know, I like things that are more ill-defined and impressionistic and Yeah. That's funny because I'm the exact opposite. For me, like things that could happen to you in real life really affect me. Like Gerald's game is scary to me. 
you know, that that could possibly happen. And I'm also a right. claustrophobic anyway. And, or, you know, in Salem Blot, just the people you trust in your town that a newcomer could come in and, oh my God, just take over your town. And who are these people? Like, and change the, the yeah. your loved ones, right? That's, you yeah. know, somebody and, and have an influence, yeah. you and know, s- over. And something like Frailty is the scare, one Ooh. of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. I can't even watch it hardly. I've tried to, I've watched the whole thing once and then uh, I tried to watch it with my son and I couldn't get through it even the second time because it's too scary for me because it's about real people and real things. That scares me more than anything. Yeah. Serial killers frighten me. I find that shit, but I like, I'm like, but I'm like big on true crime stuff, you know? Uh And it's clearly like a morbid fascination, but I do find that stuff very very frightening. Well, like serial killer movies are scary to me too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Something I'd, I'd love to jump, use this as a jumping off point for is, you know, one of the most commonly considered as the best horror movies uh, of all time is the exorcist. And so much of that comes from a huge segment of the people who, who went to see it, believing that that was possible. Right. That yeah. Believing that, you know, that possession movies, that a, that demons are amongst us and can possess us. And that's, you know, a little bit of the frailty uh, aspect as well. But one of the things that I think is really fascinating about Salem's lot is that whole faith versus Mm. uh, science aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and uh, going back to that kitchen sequence, that whole thing with the priest, you know, being challenged to put his faith against, you know, the, the power of the vampire and failing, is fascinating totally. to me. Yeah. What's doubly fascinating to me is how how I don't read Mark Petrie as being a, a particularly religious character. Like he he uh, he wards off the vampire, you know, kid at his window, Danny Glick, mm-hmm. with a, a piece of his model kit, right? That that yeah. he has a has like a Frankenstein model kit, and you know he uses the cross from the cemetery piece up right. and uses that. And what I love about that is that character is. You know, he's like an 11 year old kid who is obsessed with monsters. And so he knows that that's going to work and has faith it'll work because he just knows that that's what you do with vampires. Right. It's not that he believes in, in you know, in Jesus and and it's the power of, of Christianity warding off the evil. It is his belief in that working because the whole point is that with the vampire, they can sway you, you know, that they have power in their persuasion and him believing strongly that he can resist that with this symbol is what saves him. Yet when you have the priest using his symbol and his yeah. faith in the face of the monster shakes. It's not because, you know, he's not Christian enough. It's because he doesn't believe in his ability to repulse the evil. And I think that is such a fascinating angle to take on a, on a vampire story. I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just yeah. love that angle. I just <laughs> well, love well, I think that. Mark Petrie is all of us. I think Mark, you know, you, right. you watch the movie and, and really David soul's character and, you know, Ben in the book is, is the main protagonist, but, and you see a lot of the world through his eyes, but I think people really resonate with um, Mark's character. And and we, you know, we feel like we're Mark, right? Because he just represents us. If you're a horror fan, you see what he's doing and, you know, what his belief structure is and you go with him. I mean, I, I feel safer with him than I would with the priest in the book or the film, right? Um, that's very representative 
of horror fans and, you know, all of us like believing in something that's bigger than ourselves. I mean, you know, people who are religious believe in something that's bigger than themselves, but they, they hold on to one thing that's going to save them, their faith in God. You know, it's, it's represented in the book and in the film as something that's a very fixed opinion and doesn't allow for something really greater than yourself that, that you can survive that. But Mark Petrie gives us that hope. It makes me wonder if, um, if there was a certain point about halfway through where King didn't realize that, that his main character was this, uh, you know, <laughs> this, this kid, even though he structured the entire beginning of the book around this author, um, cause it really is the kid that has the big journey. Ben, you're right. Has, you know, we, you touched on it earlier where, you know, he's coming into this town to face his fears and he faces them quite, you know, literally there's a different, mm-hmm. it's a different horror in the Marston house versus the, the, the specter that he saw when he was a kid, you know, but it really is Mark who goes through the biggest change yeah. here. You know, he loses, he loses everything. And, you know, Ben doesn't really lose anything that he didn't gain when he came into town. So it's like, he comes well, into he town. Loses, he loses Susan because he, he loses Susan, people. but he didn't have Susan at the beginning of no. the story. You know? I mean, no. so it's like, uh, and he gains something too, because he faces the Marston house. He does face his fear. He has to face his fear and even overcome a bigger fear. And, you know, and he, and he loses a lot, but he does face the fear of the Marston house and the evil and the, the feeling that he has to come to this town to face what's inside of him, that he can't move forward because of it, you know, because it's just affected him so much in his life. Mm-hmm. But it is an interesting relationship that develops in this the second half of the book, and especially in the last act between him and the kid, and to the point to where they're the only people really left standing at the end, and they they leave town and are on the run. And like it's so funny watching the the miniseries. You know, they do that the thing you know where they open they open the the miniseries with the end of the the yeah. miniseries where they're already on the run, and then you get the story of why. And it struck me like this is that that came out in like the heyday of like the incredible Hulk show. Right. And like, how amazing would it have been if they had actually like spun off Salem's lot into a Hulk like TV show where it's this, this guy and this (laughs) monster obsessed kid going from town to town, you know, solving their monster problems, you know? Yeah. The new monster squad. Yeah. Right. All right. So this is usually the point in our show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they have coming up. Obviously, Barbara, you have uh, a really big thing coming up this week with with Jacob's wife. Tell us everything about it that you can at this point and where people can see it. Uh, yeah, well, um, it only took me five years to get to this point. So I'm really excited and relieved. Um, I first read the script like five years ago and developed it for a number of years. And and then found a production company that wanted to do it with me, developed it even more, brought Travis Stevens in right at the point where his movie, Girl on the Third Floor, was releasing. And he really wanted to do the movie. And so from there, we were able to put it together pretty quickly. And um, we filmed it right before the pandemic last February. So this whole time we've been in post-production and it's coming out April 16th. And you can watch it at various drive-ins and theaters near you. The full list of the theaters will be out probably uh, by the time people are listening to this podcast. And it will also be available to rent on Amazon and iTunes and Google Play and Vudu and all that kind of stuff. 
Right on. I was a huge. I, I still haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. Mm. The all the word that has come my way has been positive, so I'm I'm hyped to check it out. Not only because you're in it, but also because I was a huge fan of uh, Girl on the Third Floor. When I saw he made a movie, it, it was a, a horror movie with a wrestler. And I was just like, I don't know if this is, I've seen horror movies with wrestlers before and that shit does not work. And so I think I kind of put it off for a while and then I finally checked it out and I fucking love that movie. I know. It was was so so good. good. It was so good. He's got uh, such a unique point of view. CM Punk is the name of the guy, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He has like, he has this weird energy that's, uh, God damn, it's a, it's a lot like uh Bruce Campbell. It's a lot like Bruce Campbell, but you know who else I thought of while watching his performance was uh Jeffrey Combs. Your friend oh, Jeffrey really? Combs. You think so? Yeah, it's I in didn't... the eyes, I think. It's in the oh, eyes. That's so funny. I didn't get that at all. Like the whole time I was thinking, who does this guy remind me of? And and it's all in the eyes. I, I kept thinking yeah. of the frightener, you know, uh-huh. and his right. sort of, you the know, yeah. like it's not bug-eyed because he doesn't have unattractive eyes, but he has that that dude has like big eyes and shit. Stan yeah. Punk, he he definitely has a presence and an aura about him, and he's already a performer, and he really wants right. to act more. And uh, Travis really wanted to put him in our movie, and I was like, of course. I mean, I love him, and I think he really delivers. He he, it's more of a cameo, so I want to warn people about that but he completely delivers and he's so charming and i'd love to work with him again i think he's just a spectacular person wait he's in jacob's wife yes see i didn't even know that i was i was just i'm talking about girl on the third floor but this is an even bigger selling point i didn't realize that yeah yeah Yeah. okay now i'm now i'm extra excited come for cm punk and jacob's wife and get to see barbara crampton and larry (laughs) fessenden and larry fessenden can we just talk for a second about how amazing that guy's screen presence is? Like Larry, it's amazing. Larry, yes. He's incredible on he's incredible. Uh, like on screen. Just he is. Yeah. the best. You know how when they say um, people understand the assignment, that's Larry Fessenden. Whatever part you give him, he understands the assignment. <laughs> Whether he's playing a scruffy, you know, ne'er-do-well kind of drifter guy or somebody who's getting killed or whatever – um, he gets it. And in this movie, we get to see Larry in a whole different light because he's playing a buttoned up sort of repressed pastor that um, has this sort of energy about him that is overbearing and overwhelming his wife. And that's who I play. And um, he does that spectacularly. He's got his tooth in now and he's all buttoned up and his hair's combed and um, he's just he's just really wonderfully enormous in the film and and just understood the assignment really. He's just great. can I just say how much I love that? I love it when when people can have that range. Like it, I'll never forget the first time I saw Once Upon a Time in the West, and there's Henry Fonda, fucking straight up like kills a kid at the beginning of that, and it's like that's like watching a movie and Tom Hanks showing up and just murdering a kid yeah. right at the beginning <laughs> and being the bad guy. And it's like I love seeing that. So I love I, I love Larry's range, and yeah. I love that that He's you know a character he, actor. He's yeah, a character I, actor. man, I love it. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite Larry roles is Session Nine. And of course, I'm going to say that because, you know, I'm a huge set, like I'm maybe the biggest Session 9 fan you'll ever encounter. But he shows up for like one scene at the end 
Like he's just he's in there for all of Yeah. I think he has like one or two lines. And right. that's what usually happens with him. Well, but, he but he kills it in those moments. He kills he's, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's wait like till a re- you see him in this because oh, I'm I'm so excited. He's yeah, got I can't wait. two two lines times a thousand. And <laughs> the whole movie's about this woman who gets bitten by a vampire and and that's me. And she uh changes the course of the story, but also it's really a movie about a marriage and how one person, when they change and they grow through some change, uh, in this case, vampirism, how that changes their partner. And Larry takes a big turn in the film as well and really nails it. Well, we can't wait to see it. I, I, all the footage I've seen of it is beautifully shot. It looks great. And uh, we look forward to checking that out on Friday. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for joining us, Barbara. This is great. Love you guys. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Barbara for joining us for our return trip to Salem's Lot. It, it, this is one of the titles that I've I've found has been really fascinating talking to different people about. You know, Brian Fuller uh, very famously came on our show and, and had a really great reading on this. And and uh, it, it's a it's a novel that that you tend to peel back layers as you discuss it. And uh, I think that you, you and I are kind of similar in that it, the book isn't our favorite of the big name kings right it, we both like respect it and like it but it's not in like god tier for us yeah yeah i think that's fair to say but it, it is one of those books that's really fascinating to break down to, to dive into uh so i wouldn't be surprised if we jump back into salem's lot at some point further down the road it'll be a while because you know we've got a couple of those as it is now probably going to be a minute before we touch that one again but well, lovely having barbara on she's just the best always happy to talk to barbara in a nice bit of synchronicity here, our Patreon bonus episode this Friday has a Your Next connection. We are doing a commentary for Silver Bullet. It's been a longtime favorite of mine, and uh, I brought in a good friend of mine who is an actor by the name of A.J. Bowen, who played Barbara's son, one of his, her sons, in uh, Your Next. He was also in The Sacrament, The Signal, uh, House of the Devil. You know, he's... Uh, uh, he's been all over genre and uh, he's a good buddy of mine. And he came in to talk about how rad uncle red is and uh, how inappropriate it is to give a, a handicapped boy, a rocket powered wheelchair. And, and we just have a lot of fun with, with uh, silver bullet. And so that'll be on our Patreon this Friday, exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. And next Wednesday on the show, the title is Creep Show. We are going through every segment of this thing bit by bit. So it's uh, something of a supersized episode, if I remember correctly. It's got a, a hefty run time, uh, but a very, very entertaining episode. I'm not going to tell you much about the guest, but I will say that it is a comedian of some renown who has appeared on virtually every late night talk show, multiple comedy specials. His bona fides are are legit. And he's a very funny gentleman. And we had a blast talking to him about Creep Show. So look forward to that next Wednesday in the main feed. In the meantime, uh, you know, go rate and subscribe on iTunes. Five stars only, as always. You guys know the drill. And also, I guess I would like to tease this. Let's see. I guess it'll be, what, 31, uh, 30, 29 days from the date this episode airs. We will be airing our one-year anniversary show and we have something very special planned for y'all we're not going to be giving any hints about the content of this episode who is on it what it's about or anything but rest assured that we have been working 
for uh, quite literally the last two weeks on it, and we're still not quite done. I think it's going to blow your minds. And so mark that date down in your calendar right now and start getting hyped, folks. All right. So we'll see everybody on the main feed next week for Creep Show and this Friday with our patrons for Silver Bullet. Absolutely. Y'all have a good one. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>